Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Orlando Murrin. He is one of those people who has done everything. Written for magazines, written cookbooks, run hotels, and now he's got a novel out. It's called Knife Skills for Beginners. We talk about why he's always going on tangents. Also why he plotted at the start so he'd have something to look forward to at the end. And as a chef, I bet they say write what you know, he talks about setting a murder mystery in a kitchen. It is a death trap in there. I mean, quite apart from the knives, you've got the gas. You've got the gas playing around a pot of oil, which is the most inflammable thing that you can possibly have. You've got machines whirring that if you put your hand in, you can, you'll take off a hand. What about a mandolin, that terrible slicing machines? They are absolutely terrible things. But I've known so many people who've taken off half a finger on a mandolin slicing potatoes for, for grad and dauvinois. It is a hellhole, a kitchen. And that's before you even set some professional chefs in there because they are very, very hot-blooded, competitive, unpredictable people. So throw that lot together. A food setting is a wonderful idea. There is more with Orlando Murrin in this week's Writer's Routine. Welcome along. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. We see where they work, how they work, when they work, how they do everything and sort their life out to give them the best chance of getting words down on the page. And this week's episode of Writer's Routine is brought to you by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? It's all about a a murder in 1983. Unsolved, it's now regarded as one of Scotland's most gruesome unsolved murders. The killer is still on the run. A few months ago, the police announced the biggest step forward in this case for the past 40 years. And you are there as part of this live case ongoing. The podcast brings you everything that is happening. Across the episodes told through a mixture of documentary and drama, it goes into the very centre of a live investigation. So you can be part of it with interviews with the senior investigating officer, forensic scientists, psychologists, as well as family members and friends of the victim. It's such a brilliant twist on true crime podcasts, an incredible way of uh, slightly tweaking the wheel that puts you 
right in the heart of things so you can try and uncover who is the cheese wire killer if you enjoy podcasts which i reckon you probably do and you love storytelling which i hope you do and uh, a lot of crime a lot of our authors are crime writers but this combines everything you can find the series now so you can listen to the whole lot wherever you get your shows search for who is the cheese wire killer and try and solve one of the most famous unsolved murders ever this week we are chatting to Orlando Murrin, someone who has done a bit of everything. He was a semi-finalist on the TV show MasterChef back in the 90s, and his episode was viewed by 12 million people. Staggering numbers when in the, in the scheme of things, when you think back. He then wrote cookbooks and edited food magazines and became a chef hotelier in France, and now is in cosy crime. It's a murder mystery all about foul play at a cookery school, which... It sounds about right. Right what you know and all that. It's called Knife Skills for Beginners. Paul Delamere is the detective investigating murders at a cookery school in Belgravia, one of the fanciest parts of London. We talk about how Paul very rarely does what he's supposed to do. Also how he goes on tangents, whether research is forced by the plot or the plot comes out of research. Which one is it? You can hear also why Orlando is extremely particular about his keyboard and spent a long time trying to pick the perfect one and ended up with the perfect two. We also try and figure out if magazine writing, or at least the pace of it, helps you get down a novel. There's a lot going on. It's all on the way with Orlando Murrin, and we kick things off, as we always do, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I've recently remodelled my writing room um, for the very good reason that I found that my I was my day quite in, often involved a Zoom call, and I was backlit, which made it look as if I was in a cave. And I looked so gloomy and drab and kind of invisible that I switched everything round um, and redid the room and put in a skylight. So now I'm lit from all sides, which is in fact more frightening than before. But I now face uh, a wall with two windows, one each side, so I can cast my eye out to a rainbow or a street or whatever is outside and I have my large Mac screen in front of me and I'm surrounded by my pictures and my piano and a large armchair for reading but the most important thing of all is that behind me is a log burner which I installed because like a lot of writers I get incredibly cold when I'm writing. Now I've asked other writers about this and the theories vary. Some people say it's because you don't stand up and walk around enough, which is true. Um, I don't, because you get you know, in the flow of it and you don't want to break the flow and you forget to break the flow. So you are there stationary, so you get cold, even on a not particularly cold day. And I do get interrupted by my cats that bounce up and rest their heads on my hand to stop me working. So I do get little interruptions. But my theory is that the reason that writers get so cold is that You're thinking very, very hard and your blood rushes to your brain. Now, tell me if this is nonsense, but that, I think, is why I get so cold and the blood leaves my extremities and my hands are like ice blocks. With the wood burner, this is all solved (laughs) because I'm in a perpetual glow of warmth and I do not get cold, thankfully. And life is so much better since I installed the wood burner. I don't think that's a preposterous thought at all. I think you're you're taking a lot of energy, right? Um, Well, I... I've met you for a few minutes and after doing my research I, I you know you mentioned the piano and your pictures and that there's a lot of art I would say to your life so just just 
talk us through some of the pictures you've got. What is there to inspire you around you? I had a when I was redoing my room, I had a cull of pictures because I'd accumulated a lot of pictures. And when someone gave me a picture or I found a picture I liked, I put it on the wall and I've thinned them all out enormously. They're only ones that mean a lot to me. One is an enormous oil painting um, in the modern style of our front gate of our hotel that we had in France. You can't really tell. It's it's very abstract, but it's kind of an amazing piece of 19th century decaying oak, and it's very, very beautiful. And that reminds me of sunny days in France. My days in France weren't entirely sunny. I mean, the sun did shine, and the hotel restaurant that I had there was an enormous success. And let me tell you, the guests were absolutely adorable. But it was a very difficult operation. However, I survived without being murdered or murdering someone else. So that's a pleasant miracle. So that's nice to have there. Above my piano, I have an enormous, um, it would be like probably one and a half metres by uh, maybe a metre tapestry um, which I sewed myself um, finishing it in 1996 and it took me four years and this this was an age when people used to do cross stitch and tapestry and this was a, a beautiful tapestry of two peacocks and I was I was in a maybe a difficult period of my life at the time and my then partner was troubled shall we say and I sewed all my unhappiness into this (laughs) tapestry but the tapestry itself isn't unhappy but it reminds me again perhaps of survival I've never thought of this before then I have a picture of my granddad and I have um, some uh, a lovely plate that was given to me by one of my best friends that was made by um, mentally disabled people who painted it in with wonderful colors and i just love it and she gave it to me i i always said i loved it and she just gave it to me which is a very nice thing to do and a tiny piece of embroidery that a friend gave me that her mother her grandmother sewed probably in the 1930s of um a building in exeter which is where i live so that's a nice coincidence that her grandmother sewed a picture and it's beautiful very very fine embroidery so those are some of the things that surround me well they've not let me down (laughs) wide ranging (laughs) we can't all be about inspiration though when we're writing so uh, is there anything practical around you i only ask because the the new novel is is crime it's murder mystery it's fun murder mystery as well um i mean i'm talking plot points a whiteboard post-it notes anything that just reminds you this is what you're here to do by the way no, I've considered having a cork wall and I thought of, I've seen writers' walls and I love them to bits. I love looking at them. And I think they're marvellous. But I would spend my whole time moving things on that wall to the right place. I do everything on screen with a very, very few paper notes. Um, I print out the the draft maybe twice while I'm two or three times while I'm doing it and I read it out once but no I don't have a wall but what I do have is a very elaborate setup of keyboard and a special mouse and this came from a company called the keyboard company in Stroud and I went there along there and tried out all their keyboards they have a few writers because if you're 
at your keyboard the whole time. It wants to be uh, very, very comfortable. So this is a rollerball. This, this is a no one. Else, if, if anyone tries to use my computer, they cannot get near it because they can't understand what anything is. It's it's a kind of rolling cylindrical mouse with um, copy and paste keys. And my keyboard is a physical keyboard, not like a typewriter, but it has actual keys that go up and down. And I have two of them. One's a lightweight one, and one's a slightly heavier weight one. But they're keys that go down. Now I am. I don't wish to boast, but I'm a very, very, very fast typist. I use all my fingers. And one of the heartbreaks I find in modern life is that young people are not taught to touch type. Considering how much time they're going to spend at keyboards, they're fabulous with their thumbs on little tiny things. But they should. Everyone should touch type because it saves so much time. I can go at the speed of light. I can go at the speed of shorthand with touch typing. Obviously, I make mistakes. So this is such an advantage because I think of something. And it goes down. And when I'm interviewing someone as a journalist, I can interview and type verbatim, almost. I sound like I'm boasting. I'm not boasting. I do make mistakes. And I obviously miss off the beginnings and ends of the sentences. But that is such an advantage. And it means that you can work very fast and very comfortably. And when I'm when I'm writing the first draft, I use my light keyboard because it's a lot of keystrokes. And you, you can just hitting your fingers down, even though they, it, it's not particularly heavy, it's not like an old-fashioned typewriter, but even hitting them down gets quite tiring, so I appreciate a lighter keyboard. And then for the other, for my other work, I use a slightly heavier keyboard. And this all came from the keyboard company, who I strongly recommend to anyone. If your job is your hands and writing, then um, it's worth every penny that you pay to have excellent kit, I think. There's a... I was just thinking this. I can touch type pretty well. I, I, I was never taught. It was just I grew up when I, I was learning this right before iPhones and screen texting became a thing. So this was just how, how we did it. It's not like anyone sat down and told me. It was just that's what you had to do. But you mentioned uh, writing on the heavier keyboard for uh, other things, maybe later into your draft. But, why do that? What does the heavier keyboard bring to you and your thoughts? Um, it doesn't actually affect my thoughts, but um, I don't because I'm not writing so much text. I I don't mind it being a little bit heavier. And here comes something entirely recreational. I have discovered that when I'm writing, it's a very intense um, experience. Or I think all writers would agree. And I didn't know this at first. I tried to do my writing and carry on with day-to-day life. But now, if I'm writing my first draft or if my notes have come in from my trusty editor and I, I need to do a rewrite, which is effectively what you're doing when you get a set of structural edits or something like that, I stop all appointments. <laughs> and I, not because I can't spare an hour in the day. It would be good to have a break of an hour in the day but I don't want the to, to I haven't got the brain width to go out and change and do what I've got to do or think about what I've got to do that day or make a shopping list or cook something I just don't want that as well as having the my brain fully occupied so to get round finally to answering your question in my normal life when I'm not writing or rewriting and at those times I switch off and entirely from writing i don't 
pick and fiddle away. I'm either doing the job or I'm not. I'm in between drafts. Then I have a normal life, part of which involves um, playing the piano. I'm a very, very keen pianist. I've always been a very keen pianist. So for half an hour to a couple of hours a day, I play the piano and I do it properly. I don't strum away to myself playing tunes that I want to hear. You know, I practice pieces and uh, play them properly. And that involves using your hands very well. And I have found that, um, to my astonishment, having worked on something for maybe one, two, three, four months, or in the case of edits, you know, three weeks or something, that if I'm at the keyboard, my hands are in perfectly good shape when I get back to the piano. So I have not deteriorated. So I'm, I haven't lost anything, which is absolutely brilliant. Because normally when you stop playing a musical instrument that requires such dexterity as a piano, you stop for a month and you're all rusty. Your hands aren't moving properly. My hands are moving like lightning. So the slightly heavier key helps me to keep my hands fit. Whereas when I'm writing the first draft, and you're writing thousands and thousands of words, I'm grateful to have the lighter weight, which doesn't get my hands sore and tired. Well, there's uh, something a bit regrettable, really. Um, And I've I've got a friend called Jane Corrie, who also lives in Devon, and she has the same problem. So the day doesn't really start um, when I get up. Um, It's a terrible nuisance, I've discovered, but I wake up in the night with brainwaves. Yeah, sure. You know, clever ideas. Very often bits of dialogue. Um, plot points, solutions, um, observations. So I have to. I wake up in the night and I have my phone by my bed and I tap it into a reminder. And so I end up with you know seven or eight clever thoughts. And to be honest, they are very, very, very useful. Very, very good. So I don't sleep very well. I'm unfortunate. I normally sleep terribly well, but I don't sleep very well when I'm writing and rewriting so i get up deal with the cats and have my breakfast and then um not terrible not terribly the cats wake me up at half past seven or something like that by jumping all over me um and then i'm at work by about half past eight or nine i do before i start on my fiction i do deal with my correspondence in other words emails Mm. so i can't just that's one aspect of life that i can't abandon altogether but i don't i don't do social emails at those times and i have a a kind of car park on my computer for emails that i will answer in due course when i've got time but i i don't want to do now but but there's a lot more um, around authoring than I ever anticipated around fiction writing which requires dealing with of um, notes from publicity events um, people wanting things from you magazines dare I say, newspapers there's a lot of flack going on the whole time so I deal with that first thing and then I get methodically stuck in and having been a my background is as a a journalist originally and then I became a food journalist and then I became a chef and then food writing so I'm very used to sitting in front of a uh, computer and generating what I've been asked to do so I won't say I mean never say never I've never hmm, I don't have any kind of block I know that I've got a job to do which is to do that set of structural edits i know what i'm planning to do that day and i do it and if it's difficult well i just carry on and 
until I've solved it. Or if I can't write a first paragraph, this is the old fashion journalist thing if you can't write the first paragraph write the second and go back to the first and very often you find you don't even need a first paragraph if you've got a good second paragraph so problem solved so why agonize over it so i'm very sorry for people who find it very difficult to get onto the work and procrastinate but i'm used to doing it and it means that i do meet deadlines and I um, I deal with work as quickly as I can so when structural edits come in I don't my my wonderful editor at trans world gives me a week or two weeks notice when I'm to expect his edits in so I book out that time and I, I so I can cancel all appointments I can't cancel everything but I can cancel I cancel everything I can so that I know that I'm clear to do the work and when I'm writing the first draft I block everything out for you know three or four months everything that I can I mean I'm not lunatic about it but everything that I can and so I just settle down and um, and write solidly with the occasional break for a cup of coffee and, and lunch and and just do it. Um, and I find it highly immersive. I do my research as I go along. I don't, which is part of the nature of the books that I write, that my protagonist is a very... Um, dreamy-headed man who goes off on tangents the whole time. So he sees something and he, he does a riff about it. It's the way that he, his, his head works. He's very, very, very easily distracted. So when in the text I come across a point where he wants to have one of his riffs, I that's when I go off and research that partic- particular item. So the research is interwoven, which is really nice. So I don't have a research period of, you know, three weeks of research before I start writing or anything like that. Did that come naturally, as in <clears throat> your lead going off on wilds, tangents, or, or was that, <clears throat> excuse me, did, did that suit just the way that you worked? You found that you worked best researching ad hoc as and when, that, that it was just, it, it, it made sense for him to tell us this story in quite a, a dreamlike way just to give you moments to go and oh I'll look up at that I'll look into this it's entirely natural um he it just happened um there are we, I have things in common with him as you have I have com- things in common with all my all my characters um but I'm not quite like that. I have very wide interests and I'm a curious person but I'm not as easily distracted as him. It just happened that way. He has a lot of characteristics which just happened. He was he was born into my imagination in that way and it's it, it developed that at first he was he was just kind of he was one of those people who can't really concentrate very well which gives me actual problems with him in the story because I I have problems with him getting him to do what I want to do which sounds like a bit stupid I know that he's not a real person or anything but he doesn't he won't quite do what my editor and I want him to do often and we have to work very hard to kind of bring him round to it I can explain that more more fully in a moment but he he, I found that he was taking an interest in things a lot of things that were around him which began to be part of his skill in detection. So I realised that the reason he was going to be a very good detective and solve this terrible thing that happened to him was because he's very observant and has a lot of interests and a very, very good memory. 
So he can't concentrate. He can't do anything that he's asked to do. He's he's kind of um, a bit crazy in a way with the fairies, but he's got a very, very good mind and he knows about a lot of things. And that, of course, is very, very useful for someone who's being a detective. So he's got a big resource of slightly peculiar information not in all areas but in a lot of them and i discovered in in the second book which i've now written um i discovered i mean he knows about birds and bird watching where did that come from i don't know about birds and bird watching (laughs) uh let's just put you back in the day so you're writing it's pretty full-on as you said very immersive uh how do you know it's time to close the laptop switch off the big mac screen for the day I I get I get tired by about four or five o'clock, um, and um, by that time I I've had enough, um, and I just stop. I don't. I very very rarely work in the evenings um, after dinner. Um, I thought at first I like a, I like a glass of wine at dinner. I thought at first that I couldn't um, I couldn't write with a glass of wine. It would come out strangely but uh, before Christmas I was commissioned by a newspaper to write a piece about stuffing the Christmas turkey and they wanted it they asked me to do it at five o'clock and it was needed the first thing the following morning by nine o'clock so I realized I had to do it that evening and I'd already had a glass of (laughs) wine actually Um, so I found that I could write perfectly well changed your worldview if if anything it, it flowed very freely indeed in the evening and I wrote a wonderful funny piece about it always comes out funny i can't i can't write anything seriously um it, uh, funny about stuffing turkeys which was and i did recommend people to stuff turkeys i'm glad to say because there was a it was in response to a newspaper report that it was um um bad food hygiene to stuff a turkey if you know what you're doing you can stuff a turkey oh, yeah i think so thank you um not that i ever have and pro- <laughs> probably ever will well, Ter- never say never well yeah we might get there <laughs> terrible chef um what makes a good day for you when you are tired and you've switched off the screen, have your glass of wine over dinner? What can you sit there and just sigh thinking, I've got that many words and I've reached this point in the story. What is it for you, Orlando? I, I don't count words. Um, well, I, I, I jot down words, but only to make sure that the proportions of the story are, are correct and that the say there's a murder in it, I'm not giving anything away, but say there was to be a murder in it, you'd want it to be in the right point in the book. So that's the reason that I count words. And also one's aiming for a roughly, um, in my case, 80 to 100,000 word book. So therefore, and I divide it, the, the action into five acts. So that's the reason that, that I count the words, but I don't have a daily word count. I know from experience that I write between 1,000 what maybe eight hundred, one thousand, and maybe two, two and a half thousand, three thousand words on, on a, I, I say a good day. It's not necessarily a good day because they might not be that great. Those words, um, but what I would consider a good day is if I've had a really good scene. If I've had my characters doing something really having a having a really good exchange and if some particularly if something wonderful some chemistry happens between them um and something happens that i wasn't expecting which is a great joy to a storyteller to find that you know there's uh, suddenly there's something happening that you didn't know was going to happen i mean an example is 
that in um, in knife skills for beginners, and this isn't a, a spoiler alert, to my astonishment, about seven eighths of the way through the book. A food mixer exploded. <laughs> it actually exploded in the classroom. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> now, I couldn't do much. I could, of course, said that food mixer is not, not going to explode. But it did, in my imagination, explode with the full aftermath of what happened. And I thought, well, OK, um, that's exciting. And so... Um, I, I, it integrate, I in, had to integrate it in the story, so it made sense in the story. Um, and it was woven into the story, and it, you know, I, I'm not going to say it doesn't contain a clue, etc., etc. But, again, I'm not wishing to spoil the story. This was, it turns out it was a genuine accident. It was in, incorrect thermal coupling loading. <laughs> 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 and it just happened. And I mean, in life... Things do happen. And there's another scene where a couple of characters start talking and one of them gets incredibly nosy about the other person and wants to know more and more. And my, and I got very involved. I thought, oh, my God, this is so funny because one of them was needling the other. They were two women. I love women talking together. And she was going at it and said, oh, tell me about that. Oh, you were stalking him, were you? And so she's having a really, a really go at the other woman who's kind of crimson with embarrassment, kind of shrinking away, trying to say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. And kind of saying, no, I only, I only saw him six times, etc. And Paul, who wants this conversation to continue, Continue, but obviously has goes and fiddles with finds a curtain knob to adjust or something so that he can carry on eavesdropping so i enjoy i love it when something happens that you're not expecting well, and those tangents at what point did you realize that that was happening did you just find yourself touch typing and suddenly there's a food mixer exploding maybe a page or two before you're thinking ah oh, that's a good idea maybe i'll do that um no it's i think it's visual actually um i i do i I, I'm not saying that I think visually or that I hear people talking, but I, I, I do think it, I do see them in the setting. So the setting is enormously important to me. I mean, characters and setting are for me what comes first. And if there's a death, the, the death, those are the things to me that come first. And then how it all happened, I have to work out later. So if I've got characters, um, I just love the way that they interact and my characters, um, I, they're not all funny, but they're all unusual. But something I discovered was that m- my book is set in a uh, cookery school, and I've been to many cookery schools, both teaching and kind of attending or, or on looking. And I've discovered that perfectly normal people who are right, uh, the, the, I'm talking about amateurs here, not people learning to cook professionally that people who arrive perfectly normal on the first morning by lunchtime they're pretty odd it kind of brings out whatever they are it makes them more of that so if they're um eager they're like super eager if they're very very quiet and determined they're more of that if they're competitive boy are they competitive so I found that with my characters that they blossomed and expanded and became more of what they were um, very quickly. And of course, I love that because I'm having an I'm laughing at what's happening myself. So you can tell that I find the humour very, very important. And, and another thing that I found which my editor helped me to explore was that it's lovely to not just to have these characters um, 
doing their thing, but to somehow organise for them through the book to get somewhere in their lives if you can and help them to be, be feel better or be happier at the end of the book than they were at the beginning you can't do that with all of them one of them remains pretty odious but <laughs> <laughs> head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. I was the first scientist to open up these items that had been stored by the police since the time of the crime. And it's always been in my mind for over 40 years that I could have found the guy responsible. I firmly believe that somebody out there knows something. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the Fool series now wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode of Writer's Routine is brought to you by that new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Why Killer? Have a listen wherever you get your shows. And you could sponsor next week of the podcast if you'd like if you've written something it, it, it's not got the plugging and the talk and the push that you think it deserves well let me talk about it for you to get involved and make that happen support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine you could also get merch there is bonus content there is book reviews on there uh, there's a lot going on and it doesn't require a lot just a couple of dollars a month really helps us carry on it helps me keep bringing you these chats as often as i can with some of the best most varied authors around completely different voices a new episode more or less every week and you can help make that happen Help it carry on by getting to patreon.com forward slash writers routine and pledging to support us over there. Let's get back to it with Orlando Murren then chatting through his new novel, Cozy Crime. It's knife skills for beginners. In this half, we discuss whether magazine writing helps with the pace of novel writing. Also, why he plotted at the start to have something to look forward to at the end. And we've already mentioned that Orlando is busy. He is a doer. We've heard about the piano and his chefing and hotel running and magazine writing. We pick up the chat talking about all of those interests and where does the drive to actually succeed at them come from, does he think? 
Well, that's a very interesting question, which I've never been asked before. Um, I suppose I'm methodical person and uh, I like to plan and I like to have an objective and to meet it sounds a bit kind of boring male doesn't it but um, I don't like to waste time in terms of the book um, the genesis of that was that I, I was actually quite guilty of procrastination with that which was unlike me I, I well let's just say I found other things to do all those times like all those other things that I was doing but three years ago I said to myself um if you're I'd always planned to write a book 20 years ago I did a course at Arvon on beginning to write fiction or something which was absolutely wonderful and I'd always thought that I would and I've always loved reading um, crime novels um, and I said to myself well if you if you can't go on saying indefinitely that you're going to do this at some point and I actually said to myself right this is now what I'm going to do next and I remember saying the the three words I am in deadly earnest I said those words to myself and I, I said, whatever it takes, I'm going to do that next. Now, that is my project. So um, I got stuck in and, and, and it wasn't particularly easy. Um, uh, although I had six cookery books published and I had an agent, um, to my astonishment, when I wrote the first half of my book, I took it to my agent and she said, I'm oh, sorry, darling, um, I've got another cookery author who's who's doing a range of uh, some whodunits, can't do it, clash of interests. So I was incandescent with rage, sorrow, upset or whatever. So I said to her, do you mean I've got to go in the slush pile? She said, well, I wouldn't put it like that, she said. And I said, well, I said have you got a fiction agent you can suggest me to? She said, well, not really, no. Um, so I did, I, I had to, so I, I had to finish the book and then go right, go on submission on people's slush piles and send it off. And for 50, not 40, 50 days and nights, I waited in the, in the wilderness with no responses. This phase thing that you send it off with these charming letters to these um, agents who you feel that you know because you do your research and you know that they like dogs and that they like people who collect things and their favourite holiday resort and so and so. So you weave all this in uh, <laughs> and, and that you love all their recent books that they've edited and uh, that they've agented and everything. You do all this work and then nothing comes back. It's kind of heartbreaking. And it, after 50 days and nights, Two agents did get back to me within two days, um, and so w uh, we have a happy ending on our hands. But it was it was terrible that period because um, I'd, I'd written something very very with all my heart, um, and while I was writing it, because I'd never written fiction before apart from the odd short story, I had the good fortune to find a um, retired fiction editor from mag a magazine, a magazine fiction editor. Um, who helped me groom my manuscript for submission and took the rough edges off and helped me to get it ready so that it was suitable for an agent to read and wasn't quite as raw. So that was a stroke of luck, finding someone. And of course, because she was ex-magazines, we spoke the same language and we had a few old editors that we could laugh about in common. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the writing for magazines and how that influenced novel writing. Um, how did it influence novel writing? What, what did you learn about timescales, about being busy, about getting the words down that helped you shape your story? They're completely different things. Um, the 
that it's a, uh, even a magazine article of 1,500 words, and nowadays they're more likely to be three to 500 words. They used to be 2,500 words or longer. Even that is a very short piece of work. So you... Um, you plan it if you want to. If you're very accomplished and you, you've had lots of practice, you don't need to plan at all. You just do your interview or or find out or walk around a garden, whatever you're writing, right, walk around the house, whatever you're writing about. And then you just sit down and write and, and it formulates itself as you write. So you, you don't have to sit and do a plan when you've written hundreds and hundreds of articles. But it's a short burst of work. Um, and uh, a thousand words an, an hour is probably what most journalists reckon they can knock out i don't mean don't mean to um put it down at all but um and it's a simple process you write it you've you've found your voice um by having written you know many many articles then you read it through and correct it you sometimes get someone else to read it so i get my partner my husband to to read it usually um uh, and then, so that so so I had no problem with that. I've, I've had lots of practice with that. About three or four years ago, Waitrose Weekend, which is a news their newspaper, the supermarket newspaper, asked me to do a monthly column of five hundred words, an opinion, an opinion piece or something that I've felt about that week. Um, it could be gadgets, or it could be something in the news, or it could be something I've been cooking, or it could be Valentine's Day. It could be anything I wanted. And I found that a new challenge. It took me much longer to do than knock out. The, the old magazine articles because it's all in your head and it's got has to be very elegantly written a column is a column people expect it to be have a, a beginning and an end and to uh, dance them as it were across the dance floor with a few twirls and things as we go and from that I discovered how much I loved writing humour so I'm forever grateful to the, to those wonderful people for commissioning me to do a column but then, to answer finally your question, um, when it came to writing fiction, it's a much, much, much longer haul. And it requires much more patience and persistence and stamina and um, memory because you've got so much happening. You've got uh, and so many notes everywhere. It's a, very, it's a colossal operation. And, of course, the the kind of tragic thing for people starting out is that you're doing it on spec so you're writing something your first draft might take you six months six months of work on spec and the rest and then all the editing and then all the letters to the agents and then all the waiting all that on the off chance that someone might pick you off the slush pile i mean that's terrible to think of how much effort that is just for the hope of someone picking you off the slush pile so you've decided i'm going to write a book i'm finally going to get it done what happens next in well now you need a plot now you need character location setting you need an idea it it seems to have come the other way around than it might do for many other authors who have an idea and decide i'll write that for you i want to write a book how did you decide what it would be about what was that very first idea i wanted i wanted to write a murder mystery um so i knew that i wanted to write a murder mystery and i knew that it would be around food 
And I had a very good idea early on that it would be in a cookery school because it's just such a great setting. Um, I mean, kitchens are amazing places for murder mysteries. I'm surprised that not every murder mystery is set in them because it is a death trap in there. I mean, quite apart from the knives, you've got the gas. You've got the gas playing around a pot of oil, which is the most inflammable thing that you can possibly have. You've got machines whirring that if you put your hand in, you can you'll take off a, a hand. What about a mandolin, that terrible slicing machines? They are absolutely terrible things. But I've known so many people who've taken off half a finger on a mandolin slicing potatoes for, for grat and dauphinois. It is a hellhole, a kitchen. And that's before you even set some professional chefs in there because they are very, very hot-blooded, competitive unpredictable people so throw that lot together a food setting is a wonderful idea so i added into that something else that i'm interested in which which is the characters so i've got the eight crazy students at the cook school but i love big rich shabby houses and people perhaps i very i find them very fascinating where they've got a lot of history so i set it in a great big mansion in belgravia but it's not particularly well kept it's just a bit faded and the, i won't give anything away but the the woman who runs it she's not ancient at all she's only in her early 40s but she's fairly weird and the whole setup is odd and the the decoration is kind of a bit groaning it's kind of high ceilings and kind of glacial drawing room that smells like a doctor's surgery and a dining room painted that terrible kind of um, dark red shade which I think is called puce which is bilious which makes me feel sick thinking of it and she's got all the kind of in this house she's got she's kept because she's it's her family house she's kept the the old servant spells and things so it's all it's very atmospheric and the um, scullery is down a set of cranky old scare stairs because you know you don't care if the if the servants break their necks <laughs> but the main staircase is rather grand and goes up to, right up to the attic so um the set the setting and the 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 characters and the setup came to me and then it was a case of making a a story out of it i'm a beginner this is my first novel um so I planned it very, very carefully indeed. And um, two reasons for that. Um, you need a watertight, plausible plot. So I needed to have someone, a big reveal at the end, and I needed to make sure that that was covered up. And um, I needed to have confidence that um, I was heading somewhere and it wasn't just a kind of pile of writing. And the other thing, which is again to do with confidence, that I needed a big scene at the end that I was looking forward to writing. I wanted a big ending, like, you know, the last act, the last scene, with everyone on stage with wonderful things happening. And looking forward to writing that kept me through the harder bits of the writing, because there are hard bits, and there are bits where you lose faith and you think, oh dear, is this a story any good at all? And I was able to say to myself, well, maybe it's something a bit here, but remember what we've got coming up at the end. Remember that reveal that you've got worked out for them, and remember that scene at the end, what fun that is 
going to be to write. Like looking forward to dessert, really. (laughs) Exactly. You've got it. That's it. So I reward myself with something which I'm just dying to write at the end. And so I plan it very, very carefully indeed. And at at, at one point, I I realised that I was planning it so carefully that the time had come to actually write the thing, to stop doing the outline, which had expanded to something like 30,000 words, but actually write it. And so I I planned it. But as I said, these odd things happened along the way, and and they're lovely surprises. But otherwise, I knew what was happening um, along the way. Very. What have you learned from writing this novel and as you said you you've got the second one done now as well what have you learned about how you work best where you work best what needs to be done that will help you going forward well i've learned i've learned a lot about in every way i've learned a lot about human nature by thinking more about why people do things and how people do things and maybe giving people a bit more allowance for for their behaviour because because you're forced and I didn't realise this before I started if you're writing a story that is meant to be realistic and the whole point of a, a murder mystery is that people believe, believe in their imaginations that it's happening um, everything has to be very very plausible you can't have someone walking into a room without a reason people don't Occasionally, surprises do happen, but otherwise people are driven by the need to do something, go somewhere, say something. And you can't just manipulate them around like cardboard characters um, and, you know, people arriving at the right moment. And my trusty editor, Finn, he has this phrase where he says, it's a little too convenient that such and such happens and what he means is I've caused something to happen in the story someone to say something or to reveal something about themselves that is not plausibly triggered by the story and we've talked about why this happens uh, in my in my writing and it's he thinks that he's, he finds it quite commonly with writers that they if you if you are in if you plot very carefully and you work your outline out very carefully, it can happen that the character's motivation is left a bit thin because you've got them like a chessboard moving around this chessboard and you're not properly working at, working out from their point of view why they're doing this stuff. So he says that that can be a common problem with people who outline very carefully, that the that the character's motivation to do what they, they're doing is not properly explained. So we have to i have to go back very carefully and and go back over it and the problem i mentioned earlier that the the problem one of the problems i have with my hero is that he won't concentrate he won't concentrate on the job in hand he's first of all he's very easily distracted but he doesn't react properly to clues and when he doesn't explain enough how he's working things out as he goes along so we have to keep him my editor and i very constant concentrate paul you're in big trouble here you're in very 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 serious trouble you're either gonna you know your life is in danger here so don't go off go off on one on a tangent here think about what's happening watch what people are doing and tell us what you're observing share it with us and where does that leave you with plotting future novels but you plotted this one very thoroughly 
and then became aware that maybe that wasn't wholly the wisest thing to do in terms of character motivation, as you said. Sometimes your leads want to go off and do their own thing. How do you strike that balance going forward? Well, I would like to... Um, I would like to plot more loosely. Um, and I know people who do plot very loosely or not at all. The famous person is Lisa Jewell, who writes simply staggeringly wonderful books. And I said to her, um, when she said that she doesn't, um, outline, she doesn't do an outline at all, she just kind of starts writing, I said that it gives them a kind of urgent unpredictability and she said yes she said that it's been called random energy because it, it she doesn't have the problem that i have because she's only got characters reacting and colliding and she's the the, the characters are alive in the story to her and she doesn't know what they're going to do and where they're going to happen i don't know whether it's possible to combine the two approaches but given that i need from from a confidence point of view to know that i've aiming for a big reveal that I trust is going to be thrilling and a big last scene that I trust people are going to just adore, then maybe I can plan the ending and then leave more in the middle to to happen by itself. But I don't know. Um, I mean, it has worked. For the first and second books, I've got books that I'm really, really happy about. The fact that I have to torture myself along the way... Uh, but I'd have to torture myself along the way if I did it without an outline, wouldn't I? I'd just be torturing myself in different ways and, and torturing my editor as well, wouldn't I? There would be different sets of problems, I suspect. Uh, what's the next interest? What's the next fascination that, that's going to take you over? Maybe away from novels? Um, I, hmm, I said to someone uh, who, who said to me, you've, done a, you've had a lot of careers, which I have had lots of different jobs in my life, and I've... I've enjoyed them all i do feel that this one is where i might have been aiming all along because it seems to bring everything together it brings all my interests together including my random bits of knowledge and um, things that i like um i I love people so like the characters i love houses and settings so yeah so it's a kind of synthesis of everything that i like and i i love humor and i love surprising people so i kind of think this is my last job um and I hope that I've got many more books in me. I would love to write a, psych- a really dark psychological suspense book, but I'm not planning one because I'm very happy writing what I'm writing at the moment, which is cosy crime. So it's cosy culinary crime, and I'm very happy indeed in that slot, as it were. Yeah, hard to write a lot of humour with a dark, foreboding, psychological thriller. I would have thought so, Um, yeah, because I think it could be the enemy. Having a chuckle is probably not going to um, get get the creeps running down your spine. I I had to sum up my current book in three words, what it did in three words, and I, I was very pleased with myself. I said, I would like that it makes you smile, salivate and shiver (laughs) do you like that it's a nice blend isn't it (laughs) 
that is it for Orlando Murray on the show. Thank you so much to Orlando for coming on. That new book is Knife Skills for Beginners. It is out right now. Next week, we'll have a brand new author on the podcast. In the meantime, you can support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. We are sponsored by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? You can have a listen, search for that wherever you get your shows. And you can get in touch with us using the contact page at writersroutine.com and drop us a follow on X. We are there too, at writerspod. And I will see you next week. Until then, bye-bye. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 